Thank you, everybody, for coming. First of all, uh, this is the second edition that we've done of this Sip and Discuss. Again, it's the brainchild of Right Side, Placencia Group, uh, Tank Brewery. Um, it, it's just one of those things where I wanted to dive into the people of the community in South Florida here. Uh, when we did the one with Marcus Rivero with Souls by Sir, I wanted to uh, explain it prior to actually doing the sit down and talking and sit down and discussing. And basically what it is is the majority of people in South Florida see an image of somebody. They see certain things portrayed about an individual, whether it's the superstar athlete on the weekends, um, the very wealthy individual at South Beach walking in and out of live or a ridiculous car that he might be driving. But the majority of people don't understand the sacrifice, the work ethic, the determination that it took and the drive to get them to that point of success that they're at right now currently in life. The majority of us only see the modern day facade of what that person might be currently. They, they're probably changed over and metamorphosized, metamorphosized, is that the right word? Sounds good. Morphed? Sounds good for a, I could even for say a, morphed. I like, I, I kind of put them together, I put a combination. Good they word for a Thursday night. It is, it's a Thursday night word. So basically the, the individual that you're looking at is the morphed individual from many, many years of failure, many years of criticism, ridicule, uh, success and excitement. So basically what I want to get into is Tony Gonzalez, who I've known more than half of my life uh, from the day that I got here in Miami to current day now, there isn't anybody, any family, any person, any group of individuals like the Gonzalez's. The, the open door policy that they have as a family, the, the taking underneath the wing thing that they ended up doing with me, and not just me, myself, Brett Romberg, the football player that came to the University of Miami to play with one of their sons, but this was like my whole family. Anytime my family would come down, mi casa su casa. It's like my dad would come to the Keys. Half the time, I'd have to dump my dad off on them because I couldn't handle him much longer, and he would stay with Tony for a couple days. Q. GQ. May God have his soul. He's yeah, RIP GQ. So um, whether it was my father, my mother, my little brother, I think the majority of our great memories that we've had here in Miami, Florida and in the Florida Keys was due to the fact of whether it was at the Gonzalez's house or on Tony's boat, which we'll get into later on in this discussion. So the majority of the people that are here right now know you to a great capacity and, and, and some know me, some know me a little bit. Um, but I want this to all be about you and more in particular, not the TGI Tony. I want this to be more about the, the Tony Gonzalez, the 50-year-old going all the way back to being a kid, the old school uh, coming from Venezuela, living in Venezuela for a little period of time. I want to go back into the high school. I want to go back into your friendship that you had in high school and some of the people that you've met. Bro, I'm 50 years old. This is going to be, hard, this is a hard drive. Trust me, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward to a lot of it. So, so starting from the beginning. I would like to go back to the early years of Tony Gonzalez's life when you were an only child at that point in time. So you have five years between each individual sibling. So your sister Georgina is... Yep. She's five years younger. Correct, which you never want to state a woman's age. So she's five <laughs> years younger than you. And then Joaquin, obviously, one of my best friends, is the 40-year-old, the, the one ex exactly the same age as myself. Who uh, Georgina I, doesn't give a shit, by the way. She don't care. Yeah. Okay, okay, girl. cool, perfect. So, <laughs> very successful family, mind you. Regardless of, of, uh, of, of Joaquin being the famous football player or Tony being the, the, the massive CEO guy. Um, or you can call him uh, a serial entrepreneur, I believe, is, is what one of the articles I read was. So, 
Georgina is a big shot at Baptist Hospital too. So if anybody needs anything done at Baptist Hospital, shout out to her. She's uh, she's the woman to go see and, and handle. But but when you were an only child, how different was it for you growing up here in Miami when it was a crazy time period at that point in time in Miami? What do you remember from from those early years growing up in Miami? Well, I was born in 68, so I grew up at that point in time, I'm five years old, six years old. Um, that's the 70s. And, you know, basically Miami is still developing. Miami is not even a fraction of what it is today. Um, it was pretty much still, for lack of a better word, kind of a cow town. I mean, you know, the Cubans were just getting settled and the first generation like myself was being born into the city. And, you know, I just remember being surrounded by Cuban culture. I remember you know, being first generation in this town, I take pride in that. I, I, you know, it's like people ask me, where are you from? I always say I'm Cuban, first and foremost, even though I was born in this country and I love this country, I love what it stands for and I would fight for this country uh, because of its values and, its, and, and the things it's blessed us with and taking us in, especially, you know, the Cuban people from right. that time. But, um, you know, growing up in this city back then, it was all about being Cuban, and, and especially in my household. And you grew up basically out west, right? Have you guys always had the same house? No, you we grew, grew up, up in, in Little Havana. I lived on right by what used to be called the Coliseum on 37th, which is Douglas Road, and 12th. So I could walk to Versailles every day, and we used to. Oh, have, wow. Right across the street from Versailles, there was a little grocery store called uh, Santa Barbara Grocery or something like that. And I remember walking with my grandmother over there to, she forgot something that she needed for dinner or whatever, and we'd walk over there and grab it. Like a typical Cuban family, how much of an influence did your abuelita have on you, your grandmother have on you? Huge. I mean, my, my grandmother is, and my grandfather, I mean, you want to make me teary-eyed, they're very important people in my life. I lost them at a very young age. That's what my next question was I was 10 be. years old when my grandmother passed, and my grandfather, I believe I might have been 12 or 13, he passed shortly after. She died of leukemia. And my grandfather had a heart attack at relatively young age. My grandmother was 58, 59 years old. Not much older than I'm going to be pretty soon, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, but I remember her vividly. Was it the typical Cuban household where Abuela was always at the house? or yep. Because I know your mom is a very, very hands-on woman. Very hands-on woman. Loves to be around the kids all the time. And, uh, and, and is very inviting when it comes to her children and her grandchildren. So Yeah, but I think back then my, mo my mom actually did work. Um, she's in the crowd there, but I think she actually, you know, uh, did work a bit. But yeah, I spent most of the time with, with my grandparents uh, and my uncle, which also lived with my grandparents. You know, it was a typical Cuban thing where it was my grandparents, the married couple, and then I had a, a, a single Theo, which you met. Yeah, yeah. I was always in pajamas. <laughs> yeah, right? I remember. I remember. Um, I, I, again, I, I can't get over the fact, and, and you always mess with me all the time about this, about my lack of affection and the way that uh, I'm just not a big hugger or kisser and you make it a point to get really sweaty and come and give me the biggest hugs and kisses. Um, it's something that you, your brother, your dad, your mom, always. Uh, and I even told the story when I was interviewing Marcus the last time we did Sip and Discuss about how your mom nicknamed me uh, Yo Soy en Pajarito. So, yeah, she nicknamed me the Pajarito. So, um, <laughs> Breta Pajarito, man, good-looking guy. Exacto. And he would go around town saying, Yo Soy Pajarito, Yo Soy Pajarito. That's this, and again, that's that's the mind of of Mima. Which Mima. again, you would think that Joaquin growing up in a locker room might have had a twisted mind, or you being who you are. And and a lot of people. This is another thing as well. Um, a lot of people said that if you 
would have played football and took football seriously, you would have been more successful than your brother Joaquin at football. Just because of your um, size, number one, but more importantly, your, your, your physicality. Because people tend to say, the rumor is that you rule with an iron fist and you have a slight intimidation factor no. about you. I, I, I mean, I, I would not compare myself to my brother like that. I love my brother. I'm so proud of what he did. It's, you know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. I, I lived it through him, and I, I didn't need to take all those bumps and bruises. Although I did take them with him because I was there, and you know, me and Joaquin could almost finish each other's thoughts at times. But um, I regret not following through on football. But there were things that happened with the family at the time where my parents moved to Venezuela, and I didn't get the opportunity um, to actually follow that dream. But uh, I was I was pretty tough on the football field, and I could I could move for a guy my size. Have you always been big? Because clearly you are a big human being right now. Back, back 10 years, 11 years before you guys, big was a 235, you know, 240-pound defensive or offensive lineman. Obviously, in today's high school, that's small. Right. That's, that's, that's a linebacker. Right. Or, or safety in some cases. Right. right. So I was about 235, 240. I actually graduated like at 205, 210 because I was wrestling. And I was actually very good at wrestling. I won districts, and, and I, I, I placed in regionals, and I ended up losing in state. But nonetheless, I only wrestled for my senior year. I had never done that before, and I really loved that. That was, that was quite challenging. And to go back and touch on the Venezuela thing, so what was the reason that your family picked up and ended up going back to Venezuela, or going to Venezuela? Well, yeah, they, they went to. They were not right. from Venezuela. We are right. Cuban. But uh, just business opportunities my dad had. And then, you know, again, at the time, I was just out of high school. I, I had, you know, been out of high school for a semester. I had, actually, I was at UM, but again, it was kind of like my parents were thinking about moving and stuff, so I didn't even try and walk on, which I'm sure I could have, and I had one of my best friends, Lou Cristobal, at the time playing on the team, so I, I was almost a part of the team. I was always with the team right. and, and enjoying, you know, but then I ended up moving to Venezuela myself for about a year, a year and a half, um, and, you know, I ended up coming back to Miami in 1988 or so. I really missed my friends. I had my, my lifelong partner, my girlfriend at the time, Alina, which we met uh, in 1986, and we're still together to this day. Um, so, you know, I came back and started kind of life on my own. Uh, moved in with my uncle. My grandparents were gone at the time. Right. It was a two bachelors in a little townhouse over there in West Kendall. So, so growing up, here in Miami, again, you were here all the way through your high school years. Um, I know you claim Columbus, but you went to another school that is no longer a school down here in South Florida, and yeah, that's Loyola. Uh, Loyola, that's right. That was, that's old school. I mean, yeah, um, that was on 105th and Coralway. Actually, 103rd and Coralway, roughly, 104th. Is, um, is it true that a lot of the wealthy kids and, and I guess you could say crooked families might have attended that school. Come on, man! Uh, Isn't that the, one of the reasons why that school is no longer around? No, is because no, of no. That? The school just uh, the school became kind of, I, I, for lack of a better word, the discipline wasn't there anymore. I think the the management of the school or the administration kind of did it, neglected it a bit. It, it was actually one of the top schools in Cuba, and it brought that reputa reputation to Miami. And it had a very high tuition at the time, one of the highest in Miami, even uh, much higher than Columbus at the time. And a lot of the wealthy, you know, family sent their kids there just because it had this reputation uh, from, from Cuba. And at the time also, this is the 80s now when, you know, I'm, 
I'm there since like 1970. I was there since the third grade through 11th. But then you also had at that time a lot of Venezuelans and Colombians and stuff coming into town. Um, again, it was the heyday of Miami, the growth spurt of Miami as well. And, um, and yeah, so it was, it was a school that deteriorated while I was there. When I first got there, it wasn't that. Um, but I will tell you one thing, man, that school, what it didn't teach you in, in actual academics, you learned how to hustle. So you got the street smarts oh from, from Loyola. Yeah, Loyola. Book smarts were from Columbus, street smarts were from Loyola. Uh, Columbus had its hustlers too, but yeah, Loyola was, was a different thing, man. It was a different animal. Yeah, there were a lot of kids there that had their mind on other things. Um, again, being young and, and knowing your family, it seems like your family was very disciplined when it comes to whether it was the behavior, the respect, whatever it might have been. Um, did you ever cause any trouble or get in any trouble as a kid? Because Joaquin seems like he walked a very fine line. He never really strayed away from that. And when he did do something that he thought might have been bad, the guilt-stricken Joaquin, almost in tears, would break down. In my eyes, it was never really that bad. But I'm wondering, there has to be a bad seed in a family. There always is. Uh, the guy that gets caught is the idiot. Okay. Right? So I live by that philosophy. If you're going to be bad, you better be smart. Right. Um, and, and I wasn't an angel. I had a really good time growing up. I had an incredible time in high school. Uh, luckily, you know, the times that I was on the verge of getting in trouble. Now, I did get suspended from school a couple of times for fighting and what have you. I mean, I was always taught if, you know, if you're going to get picked on or if you're going to see injustice or whatever, you stand up for it. And I wasn't one to back down from. I, I was aggressive in that respect if, if I felt that you were wronging me and I wouldn't. Again, my dad always said, you're a big guy. They're always going to come at you with a bat or a gun or something. So I learned to throw the first punch. If I was going if, if to have a problem with you, I was going to take you down first. Speaking of your dad and giving you lessons in life and speaking about a gun, was there ever a situation growing up as a kid that you ever got in trouble about firearms or, or trying to leave your house or sneaking out of your house? Was there, wow, was there man, some you've story? You've done some research. Yeah, I've done a little homework. I mean, what's the statute of limitations on this? Oh, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> um, yeah, there was one time we were at an open house party, and a friend of mine got his chain yanked, and it was, uh, it was a, a gang of other guys that, that we kind of knew, and we would always see each other. Back then, there were I don't know if they still have them, but they were massive open house parties. You'd have three or 400 people showing up, and you'd get the address from, there used to be a, set, not a 7-Eleven, not a it was called Open 7 to 11 that was the name of the place. You're kidding me. It was some Cuban. Didn't want a copyright. Yeah, didn't want no, a copyright. Yeah, didn't want to have that kind of a problem. Right. So it was called Open 7 to 11. It was on 107th and 32nd, close to school at right. the time, right by the youth fair. And you'd walk in there on a Friday or Saturday night, and the old Cuban guys that didn't even speak English behind the counter, you'd just ask them, where are the parties? And they'd have little sheets written with no the way. addresses on them. And they'd hand you two or three sheets, and you, know, you bought your liquor as a 16-year-old. This was like, or a 15-year-old at the time. And uh, we all had coolers in our trunks, got, got our ice, our Reuniti, our MD-2020, or whatever, <laughs> old Milwaukee, yeah. the cheapest shit that they had. Yeah. And off to the party you went. So one night, we're at one of these parties. My friend gets his chain yanked by, um, by one of these groups. He comes out running, and all hell breaks loose. I used to hang out. I used to have pods of friends, and that when we would go, okay, where are we going to be? And this is before cell phones, so this was call each other and kind of try and find each other. 
and say, okay, we're going to be here, we're going to be here, and then everybody would show up, and at, at that party, it must have been like 15 of us that were tight friends, and we went up against this gang that must have had like 30, and, uh, and we end up fighting, I'm fighting the main guy from the other side, and I end up getting hit with a bottle in the back of the head, it doesn't break, I'll never forget, it hit me in the head so hard, and when I look back to see who had hit me, I see the bottle flying in the air, so either they threw it, or they hit me, and it bounced off the guy's hand, and I turn back around and I fall on the guy I'm fighting with and I'm just beating the hell out of him. I, I remember getting up and I'm all bloody, but when I get up, he grabs my crotch and he rips my, um, my uh, Z Cavaricis at the oh, time. Oh, the Z Cavaricis. <laughs> yeah, your $100, like, you know, you worship these The expensive things. jeans. The expensive The millennials jeans. that watch this, they don't have any they clue have about no what the hell those things are. But this shit was the shit. Yeah, they were the shit. Um, again, you know, so, so I really wanted to, like, Destroy this guy. I lost it. I got in the car with my friends when this whole thing breaks up. People break it up, whatever. And I went home, and, and it was like 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, and my parents always uh, would watch TV in Until the family room. Until you guys room. got home, right? Until we got home. The last one to get home. Well, at the time, it was only me, Georgina and Joaquin are, are young. And, uh, and they're sitting watching static. And it's like, you know, that the local signals poter guy, poltergeist, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I go up the stairs or whatever, and, and I go into my dad's closet where I knew he had a, a gun. And I grab the gun, and I put it inside my... I, well, I changed my pants as well, obviously. Can't have disease. No, okay. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> and my friends were waiting back for me in the car. It was just two of my closest friends at the time, so it was three of us. And when I'm walking out the door, thank God that my mother, for some reason, woke up, and she sees me at the door... She goes, what are you doing? I go, oh, I'm going to go get a bite to eat. And when I turn around to give her a kiss goodbye, she sees like I have a kind of a little bulger in the front of my pants. And we both know better. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Uh, it was bigger than normal. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, she, uh, she, she saved me from a problem because I was going to go. I, I knew where the guy lived. I had found that out already. I had made a couple of calls. And uh, thank God she, she stopped You're me. You're about to go handle yeah. some business. Could have been a different outcome. Could have been bad. Could have been a bad outcome. Because, I mean, we weren't exactly sober, you know, and it was late at night. God, shit happened. Right. And then I know you've thrown a couple different house parties at some properties that mom and dad might have owned. You had the police called on you a few times. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this, I'm diving into the bad stuff right now. What? Yeah. I did some homework. I, did I feel some homework. like if I'm, the, I'm on a witness stand here. But it's always good. It's always good to go back a little bit and remember some of the stupid shit you do as a kid and realize... Um, yeah, it all, but that, it, all turned, life? it all turned out. I, I, had, I almost had a friend get his head blown off. There was, you know that one friend that you have that always seems to be in the middle of shit? Always. And if something goes wrong, he's the one. Well, I have a friend like that. I'm not going to mention any names, but. Is he know, still your friend? Yeah, he's still my friend. We're, we're not as close as we once were, but he actually is the one that introduced me. Or not introduced me, but got me my wife's number. I met my wife at the Tiki Bar in Isla Mirada back in the day. Cool. And again, after I met her, I just knew her name and where she went to school. She had given me her number and like the idiot. I'm like, I'll remember it. <laughs> yeah, right. So a couple of days later, I'm trying to remember this girl's number. But my friend had the directory to Lourdes. Got it. And I called him and he was a good friend of mine. And uh, I go, hey, man. And there were four girls with the same name. So he gives me the four numbers. And it happened to be the first one that I it was called. The first one you called. Yeah. But anyways, getting back to his story, so he was always in the middle of shit, and, and, and my parents at the time had a house that we had just moved out of that was empty, that they were looking to sell or rent or whatever, and obviously I had the keys to it, so we would throw these little private parties there, you know, a couple friends, a couple of girls, and just uh, 
What we didn't know was that the intercom system, which played the music, was on outside full blast. So we're having this party there, the music's blaring, one of the neighbors that knew my dad calls and, my, and tells my dad, hey, what's going on? The house is being used by a gang or some shit. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, my dad calls the cops, my dad shows up as the cops show up, and everybody's like in a room just having a good time at this point in time. And the guy that happens to hear a knock on the back sliding glass door, there was a metal bar, is my friend. The idiot. The, yeah, the one that, the, the idiot, you said? The idiot, yeah. Eh, you know. Uh, and he, uh, he opens a sliding glass door in the dark, and a SWAT guy pulls a shotgun right through the, the rail or the bars right. and puts it against his, like, right in front of his head. And he starts crying and shit. And, well, by that time, we're all coming out of the rooms. What's going on? And, and my dad was furious. And, I, like, I told my dad walking out, I'm just trying to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> This is my opportunity, and you're ruining it. <laughs> you fucked it up. You fucked it up, man. Uh, that's funny. That's a good story. That's a good story. Uh, so the apple obviously didn't fall too far from the tree because clearly your parents jodiendo all the time. Like Mima, Pipo, the whole thing. Everybody's always messing around, playing, playing tricks. But when it comes to your business sense, the first thing that you ever really did in business probably was doing something that your father initiated here in Miami, which was a TCM, if I'm not mistaken, Tire Centers of Miami. Well, yeah, my father had a, a wholesale tire company called TCM, which eventually branched off, and at one point he had like 13 retail stores around Miami. And, and I grew up in the business, but I mean, our family as a family goes back to the 19, 1946 or so in Cuba as a tire family. We were in the same town where the Goodyear factory was, as well as the Unoral factory and the BF Goodrich factory at the time. Uh, it's a town called San Jose de las Lajas, which is about 20 miles outside of Havana. And um, so my dad also grew up in the tire business because my, my uncle and then my grandfather was an investor in that company as well, besides owning restaurants and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's something that I grew up into. So uh, it's in the blood. The tire the business blood. is in the blood. So you clearly knew what you were doing, but how did, how did this whole thing start? I've heard mixed rumors about how this thing started. I heard that you ended up purchasing too many tires one time. Was it living in Teal's yeah, townhouse? Living, I was living in Teal's townhouse at the time. Um, no, tire group was something. I, at the, when I came back from Venezuela, I, I kind of spent about a year at, in, back in 1988 or so, like I said, 89, 88. Spent about a year kind of like not really knowing what the hell I was going to do. I, I was out of college. I, had not, I hadn't graduated. Um, so I opened up a little export company and I was shipping some goods to my dad's company that he had already established down in Venezuela. And my dad's friends that were customers of his entire business from Latin America started calling me. Hey, can you get me this size? Can you get me these tires? Again, here I am as a 18 year old, 19 year old kid, um, trying to sell kind of commodities like liquor to Japan and urea from the Middle East to South America. Again, crazy shit, trying to like, you know. Connect the dots. Connect the dots, just trying to like make a deal and make a little commission here. But that was all like at the time. And by the way, this is just like the initiation of fax machines. There's no internet at the time. This is a whole other world. Um, and um, what ends up happening is I kind of like, you know, keep on getting calls on tires, on tires, and I start making a deal or two. And the only thing I was actually selling were tires. So at the time, one of my suppliers was Tire Kingdom, and, uh, which had a wholesale division. 
and the guy that ran it uh, was looking to open up an export division. But so was another company up north in Mississippi, and just so happened that both things happened at the same time. They both kind of offered me this opportunity to open up an export division, either for Tire Kingdom or for a company that's actually larger up, up north called Dunlop and & Kyle. And um, I didn't want to move away, so I, I ended up you know, taking the offer from uh, Tire Kingdom, which the wholesale division was in Coral Springs. So every day I would drive an hour to Coral Springs, and I opened up this division at the age of 19. This is 1989 uh, from scratch. Um, again, they had a, a wholesale division, but uh, I opened up this division from scratch, and I, I went up there with no guarantee of a salary. I went up there based only on a commission. Now, it was a very healthy commission. I made 50% of the adjusted gross profit of every sale, so we take off expenses on that sale. There was freight, whatever there would be. What was left, I got 50%. I didn't have a guarantee, but I felt confident enough that right when I got offered the job, I went and I bought, a, I remember it was 1989, and I bought a 1986 and a half Porsche 911. It makes a difference because the of interior course. changed in 86 and a half. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So now, okay, now that you just said that, clearly, just, clearly you're diving into the obsessive compulsive facet of your, of your life. So to give somebody a look behind the curtain, when I first met Tony and I went on his boat, this boat, when you got off of it, he seemed to find his way off the boat immediately, sweating, soaking wet with the smallest dad shorts you've ever seen in your life. And he's a big boy, so big boy sweaty in dad shorts waiting for Mima and people to be cooking like chicharrones or masita de puerco or whatever in the Don't keys. Don't talk shit, man. I was the one cleaning the fish while you guys cleaned the boat. Nobody else knew how to clean fish. And then obviously... They'd be done cleaning the boat in an hour. I'm still cleaning fish three hours later. But the best part about it is, if we would spend an hour on cleaning the boat, when he was done with the fish, he'd come back and inspect the boat. You gotta have the inspection, bro. The boat inspection by him, he was known as the boat Nazi, this guy, because I'm telling you, things needed to be buffed. You had certain brushes for certain areas of the boat. These young guys gotta have discipline. If not, they have nothing. When he threw a dry towel at me and said, start shamming the thing, I said, who the fuck shammies a boat, man? Water spots. I don't want water spots on my boat. All of the stainless steel, the, the, the bridge work, everything needed to be wiped down and cleaned and brushed. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm never fucking going on this boat again. I spent two and a half hours detailing this dude's boat. And it was the same way every time. And then it got to the point where every single time somebody new came out with us, or there was a new guy or a new player from the University of Miami that would want to come and fish with it, we would all know what's about to go down when we're coming back in and pulling back into the dock. We knew it was about to be a two and a half hour work ethic escapade it, it, was, it was incredible to me. So I, I knew immediately, I didn't, know the, I didn't know the business side of Tony at this point in time. I just knew older brother of Joaquin who was a, a fucking stickler about how clean his shit was, how everything needed to be hosed down, put back in a certain spot. If you had the rod facing the wrong way or, or a reel was supposed to be behind these other two rods, he would come around the corner and check and you, you start like getting a little nervous, you know what I mean? It gets, and that's the, and, and honest, honest to God, that's the same way that, that he runs his, his company for the most part. It's, it's not necessarily running or, ru uh, or ruling a company with an iron fist. It's more of the things of, this is what works. This is why this thing looks immaculate. This is why, for instance, that boat that he had was a, now that he had, that he just got rid of was, what year was that one? That was, your, I just, your, your I've never had a boat that long. Two. Well, the 35 yes. contender was 12 years old. And 12 it was years mint. old, and this thing looked immaculate. Like, yeah. Bahama trip after Bahama trip after Bahama trip, going everywhere around 
you know, the Caribbean, that boat looked fucking spick and span. And there's a certain reason why. And that's why his business became so successful uh, in the tire world. It was the number one Latin Hispanic owned tire distributor in the world yep. in terms of volume and 80 different countries. Uh, multiple offices. He was one of the innovators when it came to business where he realized the massive movement in China and how China was eating our lunch domestically here when it came to production, manufacturing. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to get ahead of the game a little bit. I'm going to go find me a guy that speaks Mandarin and I'm going to have him come into my company as well. So I no longer have to get or deal with a lot of the Chinese over there because it, it, it becomes a pain in the ass. And, and I think he was one of the innovators when it came to doing things like that in the tire business. Um, but not only the tires, but... but well, let's me. get back to the detail. Because that's where it all lies. I mean, if you're not detail-oriented... truth is in the details, yes. God is in the detail is, is something that I've always heard and I've always repeated. I didn't invent that one. But if you're not... If, if your house has just one brick where it's weak, that part of the house will fall. So, you know... Sometimes you have to like say things over and over and hopefully the people that you have around you appreciate it enough to, to pay attention to it that it doesn't fall on deaf ears. And, and I think that's why I've been successful is because I haven't done it by myself. I have a great group of people at, at Tire Group specifically uh, that surround me that, that, you know, over the years I worked with them enough that they now preach the same thing to new people coming in. And if your base is good, if your foundation is solid, then you can watch things grow because everyone becomes a satellite of, of your thought process and, and the way you do things. Because again, you can't do it by yourself. And if you have to watch over everybody, once you get to a certain size. I remember when, when we were just a company starting off that there were only six or seven of us. I created a sales manual, I created a I don't, I don't like to use the word employee, a, a team member handbook. Um, I think employee is like almost saying somebody's a slave or somebody. I, I remember that's the first thing you told me. It's yeah, like, we you're, work not, together. you're not considered an employee. We yeah. work together. Yeah, we're we work a team. together. I just happen to be the CEO. You happen to be a sales, whatever. But um, the bottom line becomes that even back then, in my mind, without a higher education or anything like that, I just think very logically. And I always thought to myself, well, I've got to make this so that if tomorrow I get hit by a car, I get hit by lightning, God forbid, the next guy that, that takes my position knows exactly how things run because it's, everything's documented and everybody's doing things the way they've got to do them. As an 18 or 19 year old kid, the regimented daily routine that you had kind of blows my mind because a lot of us at 18 and 19 years old don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. And we really have no clear vision of what we want to do. It takes a special person to do that. But you clearly surrounded yourself with some really, really good friends because the people who you surround yourself with generally reflect on, on how you are as a person. So I don't want to name drop any of your friends or anything, but, but I know quite a few of them. And to this day, you're dealing with influential, successful, wealthy individuals that all have their different path in life. We weren't, we weren't always that successful or that wealthy. I mean, these are just guys that shared at the time the same work ethic, and I was smart enough because of my upbringing to recognize the guys that shared the same values I did, and I wasn't with somebody because they had money. I wasn't with somebody because they had, you know, a toy. 
that I wanted to, you know, boat I wanted to, whatever. That, that wasn't what was important to me. It was people that I could trust. And I really maybe never even thought about it long term like that, but it was just people that I could feel comfortable with in the moment. And I knew if there was a problem, they had my back. If, I had, if, if they had a problem, I know I had their back. It, you know, I, friends that I could trust. And, and those friends, I mean, I'm very fortunate. And they say you could tell a lot about a person by the amount of friends that they have. And, 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 and you know, and I think I am totally blessed because I have a, a very good core of friends that I consider, you know, for lack of a better word, best friends. Uh, that I could trust with, with anything. Do you find it remarkable that every single time that you either have a get-together at your house or Joaquin has a party, that your parents are always around? Number one, the fact that they're always around is cool as hell. Number two, <laughs> that every single person that comes number over... Number one, my mother could cook, so you're going to keep her around. And number two, my father drinks and smokes cigars like a madman, so you're going to keep him around too. That and the fact <laughs> that you get a nice show of his giant, giant sacroiliac... <laughs> Always <laughs> popping out the one side, the seam of the pants. I'll let That's, you discuss that with him and bring it, him it's, on. It's the most, it's the most <laughs> unreal thing I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's a joke that we all have together. We call him Tre Pelota. Tre Pelota. <laughs> um, that's, a side, that's a side note. But, but, uh, but I find it amazing. I find it amazing. Now he perks up. He's like, hey, uh, I find it amazing that all of your friends, the, the coaches, the entrepreneurs, the businessmen, the... The, the, the people involved in law enforcement that all know your family and all know your mom and dad. And the first thing they do is beeline it to handshake them and give them a kiss or give your mom a hug and a kiss. So I find it remarkable that not only that your brother is awesome, your sister is awesome, you are awesome, but you could see what creates that, that awesome factor in people and, and clearly the tree and the roots that that you guys came from. I, I, I seriously, that's why I started this thing off with Joaquin's family because I've never met anything like this before ever in my life. Growing up in Canada, uh, coming here, living here for 20 years, 22 years of my life, and, and I've never seen anything like it. There's always something, for the most part, fucked up. Like somebody has a problem with this guy. Somebody, one of the brothers is a, is a disaster. He's a drug addict or something like that. But there's never any, there's never any issues with you and your family and, and the friends that you keep you seem to always avoid the assholes, and if you do find the asshole, he's no longer around. Like no, they just—they no seem asshole. to disappear. Like they just always. Oh, we've seem gotten to... rid of a lot of assholes in our in, in in our lifetime. I think you know, from myself, my brother, my sister, we 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 seek people that like again are like-minded that just want to enjoy life and controversy. There's enough of that without having to go look for it. Why would you bring that into your house? So along comes. Roger Penske and, and one of his portfolio companies and his buying crew, and they approach you, obviously, to purchase and become partners with a percentage of Tire Group International. After a long thought discussion and all the parties being involved, you kind of not necessarily disappear from Tire Group, but remove yourself from a lot of the day-to-day -day grind, the stressful uh, job that you had over there. In comes Joaquin, helps you out a little bit, takes over a lot of that, gets the baton handed off to him. And you start diving into something that nobody knew. Only like your closest friends, family members, and even for the most part, some of them had no clue that you like to write songs, you like to write poetry, there's an artistic side to you. What began in your mind and how long did it take after almost the financial burden 
of Tire Group International, and now you're now you're free to be you ultimately. And and the, and the real diehard Tony Gonzalez, the guy that wanted to come out for so many years, is my guess, started evolving. And what caused it? Well, first off, like you said, you know, my brother after having played football, um, you know, first with UM and then in the NFL. Uh, came into the company uh, at a moment where I think it was 2005 or something like that. Yeah, 2005, 2006. So it was a moment where the company was poised for like rapid growth. But again, I needed someone like him to come in and like look after operations where I could just focus myself on on buying and selling, um, which I, you know I've always loved that part and and, and marketing and stuff like that. So. Thank God my brother comes in at that point in time, which then leads us all the way to 2011 when we got a knock on the door and we partner with, uh, with a, a group called Transportation Resource Partners, which is uh, a, a division of or was Penske's you know, private equity group that invests in transport, transportation-related type companies. And mind you, he's never been involved in the tire game for over a decade prior to that. Correct. Uh, but he was involved in, in, in the beginning with us big time. I mean, he visited us few times, even a guy like him, you know, a multi-billionaire at the age of 75, 76 that, you know, I think he's older now, but at, the, at that time he was very, very, you know, involved. We went to Detroit a bunch of times and, you know, giving us advice and, and helping us, you know, make, make certain choices. And we've learned a lot from that partnership. I mean, you know, how to operate at another level in terms of how you look at your financials and your balance sheet and how you manage your business. Not from, you know, just selling more or buying better, but from, from a balance sheet perspective. But with that said, um, once we did the deal with them and, and they took the majority of Tire Group, I mean, we still own a considerable portion as a minority group, including some of the, of the people that helped grow it, uh, because that was very important to us to reward the people that, that had helped us get there. It wasn't just about myself and, and my partner at the time. Um, so what uh, ends up happening is that I, I had a deal to stay for three years as, as the CEO. And after the three years, again, going back now, as you say, for a long time that not a lot of people knew. I don't, I don't even think I had told my wife, to be honest with you, because it would sound kind of comical. Here's this tire guy. What, what does he know about art or what does he know about the entertainment business or what have you? But, you know, as you get older and you're going to experience this, and you may already be experiencing it as a, as a 40-year-old because you recently turned 40, um, you start thinking about what do I leave behind? And as big of a business as you grow, if it's a business that doesn't somehow connect with a wider audience in some like inner, like inner thought or like deeper type fashion, you're just creating something that, that once you're gone, it could be gone with you or it could be gone a few years later. Maybe in this case, you know, it, it stays, whatever. Whatever the case may be, a distribution business, for some reason in my mind, to me, doesn't like leave your mark. You're just selling a product from point A to point B, making a profit in, in, in between. That could last 500 years, whatever, but you're not it's building something that can be anything, replicated ultimately. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for a long time prior um, to, to doing this deal with Penske, in the back of my mind, I had always had that I wanted to be somehow in the entertainment business, either in music and or film. And that also stems from, you know, something that I heard a long time ago about the fact that you die three times. You die the day your heart stops beating, you die the day that you're buried, and you die the, last, the day that someone speaks your name for the last time on earth. So I figured to myself, fuck, if I 
can be in the music business and, and create and help artists, you know, and, and be involved with that and, and a song lasts forever. Or if I could be in the film business and help create, you know, content that's relevant, especially to our culture. Because in this one, I'm much more connected to on the film side because the projects that we're doing are projects that are, that are centered and, and connected to the Hispanic community, either Hispanic, either Miami-centric, or things that, that, that we know about that, that, that are right. important to us. We, we, we noticed that uh, when I was at Tire Group and I was working at Tire Group, there was always times where you would come in, shut the door, and all of a sudden you would hear music. And it, was, and it was you either writing a song or lyrics to a song, and then all of a sudden you would see like a guy like Tomas Diaz come in, or you would see you kind of showing everybody pictures of LB, or some of the people that you basically created uh, underneath your label, Rock the Moon, Productions, basically. Uh, that was back in 2014. That's what you started with, right? That was the yep. first baby, the first brainchild. Yep. And everything has to do with astrology in some form or fashion or the planet. Not astrology, or just the, the solar the universe, system yeah. or the universe. Yeah, everything has like a some kind of planet name to it. So whether it was Cosmo, Comet, Astro, <laughs> Rock uh, the, moon. the Moon, like everything has some sort of affiliation with, with up there, with, with space in itself. So you started Rock the Moon, you started with the music, Locos Por Juana, Latin influenced, uh, you were put on festivals. Then you kind of were like, wait a minute, hold on a second here. Let's, uh, let's kind of get and dabble into, not only we're doing the production side of things, but I have a lot of ideas. I'm starting to write down a lot of things on paper. I'm spending a lot of nights awake. I'm drinking a shitload of wine. <laughs> um, I, I have so many ideas, and some of those ideas had to deal with, with, uh, with the Mariel. And I imagine something that was very close to your heart and the boat lift and right. doing stuff with that. Well, that, that, was a, that was a short film that, that I happened to get involved with that actually it's called El Mar y El, which is a comedy and it's, it's, it's a satirical type uh, uh, short film where it really is making fun of the conditions in Cuba, especially back at that point in time and, and even to this day. Um, and... and it's something that, that just fell kind of into my lap, but I immediately gra gravitated towards it. Um, you know, since then, obviously there's been a lot more, a lot of other things that, that I've been involved with where they are homegrown. This was an outside idea that, that I was brought, but I loved it because it, 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 it again, the film played on HBO for two years. Now um, it's on PBS, if I'm not now mistaken. Now it's on PBS, correct. Um, and it did, it did well. I mean, you know, so it, it's just a great look at what Cuba was at that time. And you and your business partner obviously got together and created this, this production company now. Well, not my business partner from the tire side. I, no, I no. Met, I met a, a young, intelligent, aggressive, articulate kid named J.D. Frakesis um, that already was, went to film school, already was dabbling in the film business. And I met him shooting our very first music video, which was a song called Suki, which was... <laughs> Your brainchild. Yeah, I was kind of coming into this, trying to recreate La Macarena. I thought I could create this whimsical, crazy... And it was a song that I actually wrote. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, Joaquin and my dad... Everybody had their input, yes. Everybody wrote a sentence here or there, but it was... And then we created this wacky, crazy video. That which was, was really cool, by the way. Which was an awesome, funky-ass video. Flavor Flav, Eric Estrada, Alicia Machado. You had Levitar doing a little Levitar guest spot in there. Poppy is in there. Poppy's in there. But basically, the name Suki came from 
every time we would go out on the boat or we would get shitty or we would play dominoes or we would do something, he had a thing. Instead of doing like this, you know, where you find somebody looking at it, you got to give him a shot, he would mumble something or say something really fast. And you got to say, huh? And they'd be like, Suki. And oh. it was just, that was like the thing. That was it. Suki's a game that goes back, I think, you know, 100 years in Cuba or whatever. It's, it's, it's also known as bazooka or pangangi. And it's basically suck it. It's like, you know, somebody says what or Han, they leave their mouth open. It's like, boom. <laughs> and you say, Suki. <laughs> and uh, there's rules to the game. There's the non-emotional Suki. There's the emotional Suki. There's all types of... <laughs> and those rules are still available. If you go to rtmp.com on our website, there's, I think, a section there for the song Suki. And there's the rules to Suki that are, uh, that are included there, so... 2014 and 15 and 16 were probably like pretty massive years for you. Everything was coming at you 100 miles an hour. Um, you're building your castle that you have down off of Bay Shore for the most part. No, and no, it no. took forever and a day. Yes, but that, that I completed towards the end of 2012. So I was already in. You were already in there. Yeah, the, the, that, the building of that actually happened during the whole Because tire group you're still building it for the most part. Yeah, there's still. There's still stuff going there's on. There's still in that part house. of the man cave that yes. needs to be done. My yes. Shout out to my contractor, Mario. I love you, but get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> Uh, so, so the house is going on continuously. Um, you have the, the Rock the Moon stuff going on with the music label. You have the movies now are starting and like the scripts. And now you're starting to write this script pertaining to the Winwood movement for the most part, if you really think about it. With the, it it's gang affiliated, but it's also dealing with the tagging industry. Yeah, that's, that's my, my partner's world. He came from the graffiti world. And that was his brainchild. And, you know, once I, I heard what his idea was and started to hear some of the stories that he's been through and then with my own experiences back from growing up and being around, you know, not being in a gang, but coming up against gangs and knowing what that world was all about. And it really opened my eyes because it was a world graffiti that, you know, we all see graffiti, but at least I didn't understand what the hell it is. And most of us don't. We just see it as a nuisance in some cases. In some cases, some might see it as art. But there's a lot behind it. It's, it's, it's about turf. It's about, you know, establishing your will as a young person. And, and that's what Vandal, you know, ended up being the film that, that we did. It was, it was my, my partner's experiences coupled with what I like to say is an underlying story that, that you know, when, when we co-wrote it, myself, him, and then there were another three writers that obviously were professional writers from LA, we, we added a lot of the color and the Miami dialogue to it, and obviously storylines that we brought from our own personal experience. But writing is an art as well, so you just don't get up one day and say, hey, you're gonna be a, a writer and you write a whole script. You gotta have pacing, you gotta have certain marks you've gotta hit in every act, and, and, and I learned a lot in just that was that, that Was that your first, was that your first, I guess you could say, baptism into how everything works, Hollywood style, actors dealing with actors, well, staying on set super, super late. Yeah, well, Vandal is, is, is the, I mean, it took us two years to write that script because a lot goes into it. You gotta put your head into every character's mind and kind of think how they think. So it takes a special mindset to do that kind of work. So it took us two years to actually come up with a script and then to prepare to shoot, we were in pre-production for 60 days. That, that means you start hiring people and you start figuring out where you're gonna shoot, locations, and, and you know, I've done a lot of things in my lifetime. I've been you know, pretty successful in business and, and have this 
company that has grown uh, beyond, you know, my, I can't say beyond my imagination. I always knew we would grow. But, you know, I've been through all that. But producing a film, an indie film on a, the budget that we did it at the level that we did it, I'll never do that shit again. Not bad. It was, it was the, 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 you know, again, 60 days prior to, but then it's, the clock starts tightening as you get closer. I must have read, I don't know, 150, 200 contracts in about three or four weeks. I don't like to read that much. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, I don't like to read contracts. Um, and then the actual 26, 27 days of shooting, you're talking about set time alone is 12 hours, but as a producer, as the single producer, because my partner was also a producer, but he was directing, so I was doing the producing job uh, all by myself, really, never having done it before. You've got to make so many decisions so quickly. So many things have to go right in terms of even there were days where we were shooting tomorrow. We knew what we were shooting, but we didn't have the location locked down. So you got to think on your feet and, and you've got, you know, it, it was it was in a small production. It wasn't a large production, but we had about a hundred and some odd people between actors and crew, you know, that were on payroll every day. And again, thank God for for the people that were around me at the time that helped me out and especially uh, my cousin's girlfriend that came from California that, that already had some experience in the film business. I brought her in as my right hand about, a, about five days into production. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I can't believe, I, you know, this is overwhelming because I was gonna say 12 hours of shooting, then you got another four or five hours of either prep or post, you know, you're sleeping three, four hours a day and it's like a bomb goes off and you're in the middle of this hurricane and it's, it's overwhelming, it really is. On a t again, give me a $10 million budget, a 20 million, let me hire three or four other people that know what the hell they're doing and let only the big problems come to me, I think I could handle that. So are you the type of person that, because clearly I feel if you're successful for the most part, people always have fears of failures and I think that's what probably drives a lot of people is that fear for failure. Were you more nervous sitting in a meeting and possibly getting ready to sign a contract for giving away your baby, not giving away, but becoming partners with something that you considered your baby, or sitting there getting ready for your premiere of watching your work. What made you more nerve wracked that day? Brett, let me answer this like this. And I'm not Superman, and, and the only reason I'm gonna answer it like this is because if you're afraid of failure or if you're nervous about doing something, you're never gonna do it to your fullest potential is my aim. So I, I don't, I make a decision, I move forward. And the best example of that is actually art. There was one thing that someone told me when I first went to paint. I haven't been trained to paint at all. Um, I never even knew I could paint, but I got around the artists at, uh, during the Vandal shoot and I was just in awe of, of their talent and stuff. And one day I asked, actually, um, Itawi from Locos Por Juana, which is, besides being a musician, is also an artist. And I go, man, I want to paint. He goes, come on, chief, let's go to the art store and I'll tell you what to buy. So we went, we bought a couple of canvases, some brushes, some color, got home. And I go, I don't want to, I'm just going to paint. I don't want you to tell me what, what to do. I, I, the reason I say that is because I want to fail or succeed based on what I have inside. I don't want to be influenced from the outside. I, then I think that your creation is stymied if you follow what somebody else has done. Don't get me wrong, 
I'll go to a gallery or I'll look at a picture and I'll look at that intently, you know, intensely and I'll, I'll look at what the other artists have done in terms of brushstrokes and then I'll imagine how to do it and let me go and do it. So he told me one thing that is, 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 is life, really. He goes, remember, in art, you can't make a mistake. And in life, you can't because that mistake or that failure is only a stepping stone towards success. And there's been so many times that I start painting one thing and I make what, quote unquote, might be considered a mistake. And then I, I just let my hand go with it or let myself go with it and follow the direction that that so-called mistake took me. And I come up with something totally new and different. So would you say that starting to get involved in art and, and canvas and painting was more your break from the, the movie world? The, the script writing, the, the stress level that you probably endured in trying to make deadlines and production and dealing with... I wasn't painting during shooting days, I'll tell you that. But it, this happened kind of in, in the middle where we had a little break of about... We had a Christmas break in the middle of shooting, and that's when I bought the canvases and stuff. And then after we got done shooting... Thank you. Um, after we got done shooting is when I really started to paint more. But yes, painting is something that, you know, I walk into the room that I have in the house dedicated to it, and I put on some music, and I open a bottle of wine, or I have a drink, whatever, and all of a sudden, you could transport yourself to wherever that painting takes you, whether it's, you know, painting a fish in the middle of the ocean, jumping, which, you know, we all love to see when we're fishing, or just painting some colors and, and, and flowers, sometimes, I paint things and I look at it and I go, what the fuck did I do? I, I, don't, you know, I don't know why this came out of me, but you know, I have some real abstract stuff, but I put a lot of time into it. I put a lot of like, you know, when I'm, when I'm lost in it, I just stay in it and I let myself, put it this way, sometimes my parents will walk into the room or Alina will walk into the room and I will jump startled because I'm so lost in what I'm doing. And, I, and, and it, you know, you, you start to gain an appreciation for the creative mind. I've always had more of an, anal I can't say I've had more of an, I've always been forced to be more analytical and to hold myself to the rules of, of you know, a regimented world because business is, is that for the most part and at least distribution. But to be able to let go and lose yourself in either, I mean, I could be sitting in the corner somewhere, and I could be having the best time of my life because I'm writing a poem, or I'm writing a song, or I'm sketching something. And I just, I'm the center of the universe at that point in time. And there's other people that have to go and look for that somewhere else. Right. I think, you know, to be at peace, being able to look inward and bring that out of yourself. I could imagine going through cool. life ultimately, like your life for the longest time was a balance sheet, if you really think about it. Yeah. yeah. Cambio. Um, pluses and minuses, checks and balances, and then all of a sudden now, salute. And all of a sudden, now you're dealing with sitting in front of a piece of, of canvas for, what's the longest you spent painting? The first painting I made, I did, I spent like 20 hours without stopping. 20 hours. And when I'm, <laughs> I was done, I couldn't move my right shoulder. Because it's, 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 it's very different than these pictures. It, I, just, I just started doing like vertical lines kind of across the painting at an angle. 
and eventually it became a sunset with an ocean and but there's so many layers and I just kept on doing it and and look I still I do and I still get a little bit of a pain um but yeah man I've you know again Sometimes something comes out of you and it comes out quickly. There's other paintings. Like I have a painting right now that I've been working on shit for six, seven months. And it, to me, it's not done. And I just look at it every, I have it in the corner of the studio there. And I look at it every once in a while and I might do something or I might not. It has to, has to flow. If you force it, it's not gonna. I feel like you're one of these type of people that just, they, you need to constantly be doing something to keep your mind going. Because I feel like, Although you find this relaxing your mind, having somebody sitting doing something for 20 hours at a time, or even a tattoo artist doing somebody's tattoo for 10, 11 hours at a time, and they find peace in that, clearly your mind is constantly racing and thinking about something those other 15, 16 hours a day. Like they have to be doing something. And this is your scapegoat, basically. Could be. And, and mind you, I don't, a lot of people don't know this either. How many paintings do you have at your house? How many have you done? Well, I, you're going to the fact that I've never given one away. Um, you have never given a painting away. Let me classify that. My sister took one. Uh, <laughs> my sister, no, my sister, I gave my sister one because she's a pain in the ass and I had to. Um, and, and I love her, so I gave it to her. Um, but no, technically, I've never, I've never let one leave the house because I consider so, the one in Georgina's house still in my still possession. yours. It's on loan. Yeah, it's on loan there. But you but have how many that you've completed? I probably have at well over a hundred. There, you have a hundred paintings that least. you have done that you have never. And given. they're all big. These are actually, these are actually a smaller of the size. I mean, I have. Some that are 10 feet long by three feet wide. I have some that are eight feet tall by five feet wide. I like to paint, I'm a big guy, I like to paint big. And you've never sold any? Never sold any. I've had offers, but I've, again, it's not, it's a part of me right now. I don't wanna, I don't wanna. Are you gonna be that weird guy that doesn't wanna sell or give away his paintings? Like, you wanna spread your name and your word and you want to leave a footprint on this earth whether it's with music or whether it's with film. I understand. Art can possibly be that story that somebody's going to say, you know what, this motherfucker never gave away any paintings, <laughs> never sold any paintings, but he gave me one. And this guy was Tony Gonzalez. I hear you, Brad. I know where you're angling. I know, I know, I know what you're angling for. I'm here. saying I got a lot of walls in my house. I got nothing on them. So I'm finding a way to... I'm constantly, constantly I will. Planning. I think I will eventually come to that point where... I will be able to, to, part. to part, but for now, I, I can't. I and, what, and what I find amazing about your art is, I remember when you first started doing this, and a lot of it was dotting, like just like, and it took, it's tedious work, it really is. And I've seen you, like in the beginning, I was just like, that's awesome, that looks cool, that looks great. And now I'm like starting to see you evolve, and like you're getting to the point where now you're like, you're getting awesome. Like before it was cool and you're experimenting with, you're experimenting with like different colors and covers for that matter and, and different shapes. Different and techniques. Yeah, man, like you could see yourself like really evolving well, as an artist. I can't take credit for that all myself, although I said I've never been taught, which I have not. I started painting a few months ago with an artist named Garceau, which is a, a quite famous Greek artist. He's an older gentleman that, um, to me is kind of like almost like a Michelangelo kind of guy where 
this guy does everything from architecture to music. He's just a savant. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, I've been friends with him for a while. I've collected his art in the past, and I have art, his art, some of it in my ho own home. And, you know, we, he just called me one day. He goes, hey, I, let's paint together. So he's been coming down. He lives up in Pompano. He comes down, and we'll go 10 hours. He was there on Tuesday. He came over to the house like at 4, and we painted till like 2.30, 3 in the morning. And uh, so painting with him, we will come up with a concept mutually. For example, this is a collaboration with him. This was a concept that I had. It was something that I sketched. But then, you know, we'll start, he'll start maybe in one corner of the painting, I'll start in the other, and we'll start coming together. And, and, and you know, if I do something cool, he'll be like, oh, that's cool. And if he does something cool, he'll be like, that's cool. So you start kind of like, you know, coming up with, new things as, as you evolve as an artist. And I think that's what's kind of happening. And again, there's that, that one's all me. Um, and, and again, there's, there's just things that you start noticing. And I, I was very affected when I did this. I went to the Met in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of Van Gogh. Um, and that's something that when I saw Van Gogh's bouquets and the way he was painting flowers, that's my interpretation. I don't think that people invent new things. I think that people take what's been invented and make it better. I think everything's been invented. It's just an evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, if it wasn't for electricity, you don't have the light bulb. If you don't have the light bulb, you don't have the camera. If you don't have the camera, you don't have the TV, whatever, you know, that, that evolution. is. So, you know, again, it, it's just I'm constantly seeking inspiration around me, and that's a cool way to be. Again, not easy to come in and out from, because I'm still involved, obviously, on, on the business side in, in a lot of different things. So it's hard to sometimes turn that switch on and off. And, and I could appreciate creatives deeply because to be a creative, you've really got to sometimes unplug from the reality of the world and cut out all that static in order to be able to let your mind go deep enough to come up with, with something new. And the last thing that I kind of wanted to get into with you is your latest collaborations with some pretty badass Hollywood acting. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you got something going on with him. You already had something going on with him and his production company with Corporation. Obviously, that was your introduction with him. You've had some really cool people starring in this movie as well. This is the one with Benicio del Toro, right? Correct. And you've had a lot of shit go. Did you hear my Spanish right there? Is that, was, <laughs> was that a little surprising? Um, but, uh, but now you got something also going on right now currently with him. I don't know if you can get into it or not, but well, it blew. When you told me a little snippet of what you got going on with him now, this is like game-changing stuff that, that you're going to come out with. Yeah. Um, again, when I teamed up with my partner, we did Vandal. The corporation was something that he had been on since he was a student at UM. And that was a bestseller, right, out of New York? Correct. Well, what, the way that transpired was for 10 years he had been on this. I come into the picture. He has all this material. I look it over. I do a little bit of research. I go, yeah, this is an incredible project. We went out and we basically did a deal, hired the writer named TJ English, which is a New York Times bestselling author. He's got like four or five New York Times bestsellers. Um, sewed up all the, uh, you know, from the business standpoint that I bring, I, you know, I, I sewed up all the rights to the story, et cetera, and we had the book written basically at our, you know, 
based on our materials, our source material, we, we handed over 60 boxes almost of, of evidence that had been collected, you know, 25, 30 years ago that, that had been put away somewhere and we knew and we bought those rights, et cetera. So that deal with, with um, which a bidding war ended up erupting in Hollywood over this uh, based on the book proposal. We hadn't even published a book at the time. The book proposal that was written by TJ English was so thorough, it was about 120 pages. A typical book proposal might be 30 or 40, uh, but it was masterfully written because we had given them a lot of information. Again, we had also already interviewed probably 20 or 30 sources here in Miami alone, uh, just from making calls, you know, being someone in the community that people know to, you know, be a serious guy, a lot of doors opened up. And for those that don't know what the corporation's about, it's basically like the Cuban influenced underground. Well, so, it's a story of, of, of what they call, the, the, at the time, the Cuban mafia, if you want to call it that. It was the guy that controlled the numbers racket out of New York, the Bolita, which every Cuban, even me as a little kid, I remember the Bolita. I, you know, I'd, I'd see a frog and my grandmother goes, oh, we got to play number 37. That's the frog or whatever the hell it is. And, you know, she'd bet on the frog right. and you just call your, your local guy. And those, those bets were all being pawned off to the bigger guys, and this guy was the biggest. At one time, he had 2,500 people working for him. He loses his way over time from being a, Bay, a, a, a Brigade 2506 hero and, and a Bay of Pigs veteran. So it, it's a tremendous exile story. It's a story about rags to riches, a guy that was very focused on, on trying to take back Cuba, uh, but then loses his way eventually in the 80s. He gets into drugs, starts using drugs himself as, as a 60-year-old man already, um, and becomes very bloodthirsty and stuff. But again, you know, some people say, well, why are you telling this story about Cubans? It's not the best. Listen, man, it's like all stories need to be told. And the story has its good and the story has its bad, but it's definitely got a lesson inside of it. So this, this deal here brought us into the stratosphere, basically, in Hollywood. As, as you know, first level producers because part of what we did was we optioned the material to Paramount. It, again, it was a bidding war. It was Fox, uh, Sony, Warner, you name it. Every studio was after it. We actually set a record for the highest price ever paid by Paramount for a book option or for a book proposal. Um, and, um, and we stayed on as producers. So it's me, my partner, JD, and then Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer, Davis, uh, Jennifer Davidson and two others, uh, Andrew Heineman and Alex Rona, all top-level Hollywood guys, you know. So this deal has opened the door, obviously, for other things that we're doing. And we own, one of the things that I've kind of focused in on is, is finding good stories. We're doing one on Peter Pan and the whole... The Pedro Pan or Peter Pan? Pedro Pan. Pedro Pan, Pan. Pan. okay. You have an Anglo audience, so... Right. <laughs> Pedro Pan. Um, you know, that's, that's something that's near and dear to my heart because... What a lot of people don't realize is there were over 14,000 Cuban kids that were sent to the United States between 1962 and 1964, and the 1964, that, that came here without their families and were basically taken in by the Catholic Church and spread out all over the United States. The Jews in Germany went through the same thing in the 1940s when Hitler was taking you know, the Jews away. They, they shipped off a lot of their kids to England and Spain and other European countries. It was only 2,000 of them. This was 14,000 families separated themselves from their kids. So we own the rights to two major books, one of which is a National Book Award winner called Waiting for Snow in Havana and Learning to Die in Miami. It's, it's a two-part kind of story. 
And that's something that we're working on right now on a screenplay with uh, a writer, uh, the one that did Amparo, actually, that play that's been playing here for Bacardi. Mm -hmm. um, so we got that going on. But getting back to the other stuff we're doing, um, I can't, it hasn't been announced yet with Leo, but we're doing a documentary series and a, a multi-year series as well on a very important subject that's, in my opinion, something that the world needs to know about and something that, that is affecting the world. Uh, and if we don't do something about it, you know, we will pay consequences as a planet. It's not about climate change or anything like that. It's, it's, it's not an Al Gore no, story. But. No, it has, it has a, a definite, you know, connection to... It's very political. crime, it's political, it, it's a lot of things. Um, so we're, we're working on that. It, it'll be announced soon. I'm looking we're, forward to that. We're one. also partnered with a company out of England called Grain Media on that, which is, is again, both, both Leo's company, Appian Way, and Grain Media are Academy Award-nominated uh, companies for documentaries. Um, so we're, we're in the right place with the right partners. And then, again, from, from that same source material will come a multi-year series that we envision as a four- to five-year kind of, of thing. And then besides that, we've got um, one other project that has been announced, which is also a multi-year series that's uh, uh, set up with a studio called E1, and our production partner on it is Chris Long and David Ayer. David Ayer is the guy behind. He's, he's either written, producer, directed, or done all three on these movies, but for example, Training Day, he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, U571, I believe he wrote and directed. Suicide Squad, wrote, directed, produced. Um, Bright, the new one on Netflix with Will Smith, that's his as well. I mean, the list goes on and on, a top-level Hollywood producer and a guy that shares. That's the thing about Hollywood, you gotta have people that share your same view of the world. If not, you might get a, an Oliver Stone movie. And, you know, as a Cuban in Miami, I can't allow that to happen. Of course. Um, so we're, we're looking for people that want to tell the history objectively and not put a spin on it and, and, and let the world know what... And, and that story is called The Exiles, the one with David Ayer. Uh, and it's about, you know, the Cuban uh, generation of exiles that came and, and the guys that were part of the brigade, Brigade 2506, what they went through and how then they become, many of them, agents in, in this, with the CIA or the DEA or the FBI and kind of the US government, for lack of a better word, takes these people and creates spies out of them and operatives out of them to fight the Cold War against communism in Latin America and even here in this country and does that for over 30 or 40 years. So it's, it's quite an interesting story that the American public probably has never pieced together how influential uh, Cuban exiles were in, in, in American foreign policy in this hemisphere. Drop the mic. Yeah, man, that was, that was pretty important. Um, no, I'm sitting here and I feel like I'm a psychiatrist because I'm like, I'm trying to like psychoanalyze everything that you're coming at me with right now. Uh, you, were, um, you were doing that before. Yeah, I'm and I, I feel right now that my last question is going to be to you is, is probably this. It kind of comes with a little speech at the beginning of it, but um, it seems like your whole life, your checks and balances and your pluses and minus were very regimented. And you feel, I feel like I'm looking at you and I'm listening to you, and it seems like you have that constant battle in you of 
the guy that feels like he needs to be as simple as plus and minus or x plus y equals z, but deep down there's like that artist that wants to lose himself in a painting for the most part. It, it seems like that, that constant battle, and not only that, but you add in the mix of wanting to leave a legacy and a footprint in this planet where you have nine million things going on all at the same time. I find it remarkable. So that's why I wanted to like talk to a guy like this, is, is not only do I find him fascinating and I find him to be an awesome human being and a great person, but I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my mind around not only how you became so successful, but I'm th I think I'm honestly leaving more puzzled and with more questions in my mind than I started, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, find that, uh, I find that pretty fascinating. You got my mind thinking really like heavily right now, almost to the point where I got like a little monkey on a bicycle right now going like this. I always say there's 24 hours in a day, so no excuses. Um, so we know what's next for you. When is it all going to end, do you think? When, when have you said, or when will you ever throw your hands up, get on the back of your boat, and just say, I think I'm good now. I think I'm okay. I'm ready to hang it all up, put away the paintbrush, put down the, the megaphone sitting in the director's chair, or the producer chair, or whatever you're involved with, and just removing yourself from the tire industry, and just saying, I've had enough. When does that day... Because I know, I know you, and I know that you, you have a plan for everything. This, not so much. In your art, I find that that's your escape. That's your way to just let yourself go and let your mind take your hand wherever it wants to go. But I feel you're, like you have wrong. a plan. I, I don't. I don't have a. You plan. don't have a plan. I don't. I'm not like that. I don't. I don't sketch my X time. I'm going to do this. Or you don't that. have a five-year business plan, or or and I want to be it's, here in it's ten funny. years. You know, I when as. Growing Tire Group, you would think a company that grew that quickly and, and, and became, you know, that large and, and, you know, did all the things we were doing, we would have, you know, this plan and these budgets. Of course, I had a vision, but we really didn't even have budgets for probably the first 15 years we were around. You know, it was just like, whatever it takes, we've got to get here. And it was just by pure will and determination uh, obviously, it takes you know good banking partners, and it takes a lot of support from a lot of like your own your own team and stuff like that. But no, I don't I don't have things planned out like that. I live I'm a I'm at peace with myself. I want to accomplish things. I want to do good things. You know, I want to leave. You know, if there's one of the enjoy one of the enjoyable things about being in the entertainment industry was or is actually working with young people and uh yeah millennials are a pain in the ass but <laughs> congratulations very proud of that uh no but but if if you can if you can impart your knowledge or if you can affect their lives and teach them about you know balance and teach them about just how to react to certain situations and and mentoring i, I have guys that that you know i mentor and guys that are in business some are creative some are not uh and i enjoy that i enjoy imparting knowledge on on people and 
And I'm very quick, I, I make decisions very quickly. I don't, I don't ponder things a whole lot. And if I do have to ponder something, it's usually with intent because I know that the solution will come to me instead of me chasing the solution. And that comes, you know, with maturity, yet I've always had that kind of ability instilled in me from my parents, instilled in me from business partners. I always say I learn something from everyone that I meet. I learn something, even, even, if, you're, even if you're not trying to give me, or, or even if you're trying to hurt me, if you're, I don't like to say enemy because I don't consider people my enemies. I don't waste time on that. I don't waste time on hate. Um, that's their problem. They, they're the ones that have to live with that type of thing. But I learn from them all. I learn what not to be. I learn what to be. I learn how to be. I learn why. And if you're constantly open to that as a person, you're going to do good things. Food for thought. Hmm. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming out. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you brought some of the artwork because I wanted to see that fish one in person. Um, I, I, I know flowers is, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's just something that I like to do, man. And that's what comes out. That's what comes out. Yeah, don't, so uh, don't stay, judge me for it. No, I know, I know. So stay on your toes, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, for what Tony's got coming out next. Uh, and I imagine there's probably going to be a lot more after this as well. So uh, thank you for coming as well to the second sip and discuss, and I appreciate it. Yep. And thanks for having me, Brett. It was fun. I'm telling you, I'm right now. Congratulations I'm not, on your success. Thank you, um, but for real. I, my, my fucking, my machine right now, my brain is working. I'm not going to be able to go to bed here for another couple hours. Make another baby, baby. Bro, the, no, I'm done. Cut. Another girl, another la girl. Sierra, la cocina sierra, Good to go? We good? Thank you, brother. Thank you, guys. Thank you.